following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5:21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here. If you're just joining us, we are four weeks into a seven-week series on marriage. And don't worry, single people, there's stuff for you today. All right? Hopefully there's been stuff every week. But we're doing our best to show you how to build a great marriage, um, what the Word of God says about building a great marriage. There's a lot of confusion on that in, in today's society. Um, but sometimes, now how many, how many of you guys um, are familiar with uh, Magnolia Homes, Chip and Joanna Gaines? Come on, raise your hand, you liars. There it is. Look at this. Look at this. I knew it. Well, if, one thing that you know if you watch that show is before you build something great, it's demo day, right? Right? Before you build something great, a lot of times a lot of demolition has to happen first. Well, today is a little bit of demo day, all right? We have a lot of unhealthy and unbiblical ideas of marriage. And many times these ideas are kind of running under the surface of our lives in such a way that we don't even know that they're there, let alone where they came from. But if we're going to have great God-glorifying marriages, we really have to demo those false conceptions of marriage. I kind of briefly hit on this in our first week There are primarily two uh, concepts of marriage that I kind of want to blow up this morning. The first one is getting a little more rare. Let's call it the white picket fence idea of marriage. It's found in mainly the older generation, but it's the marriage that is all commitment and no affection. This marriage has devolved into a roommate situation. Often they sleep in separate rooms of the house. Divorce isn't an option, but in reality the marriage has suffered a cold death. They may smile for pictures. They may even go out to eat occasionally. But the marriage no longer has any life in it. Now, This is often caused by one or both partners putting a pseudo-spouse 
ahead of their true spouse for years on end. I talked about the pseudo spouses last week. Our careers, we're going to focus on our career. This is the decade I have to work, 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 work to make a living, to provide for the family. And so maybe one focuses on their career and the other focuses on the children and they spend a decade or two putting a pseudo spouse ahead of their own spouse. And 10, 20, 30 years down the road, they look at the, the person that they're living with and they're nothing more than a roommate. Career, kids, friends, hobbies, all these things can be pseudo spouses. This happens because they disobeyed the word of God and didn't leave and cleave to their spouse. They didn't hold fast, hold fast to their spouse and put their spouse ahead of every other human relationship in their life. We saw this last week. Your marriage relationship is meant to be the primary relationship in your life. Not the kids. Not the family. Not the career. Not your hobbies. This in some sense, you could say this is kind of like the conservative view of marriage, that marriage is good for society, marriage is good for the family, that's its purpose, that's its function, but this falls short of the biblical ideal, this falls short of a gospel-centered, God-focused marriage. It's not good enough. God's after more than just commitment, more than just white-knuckle obedience. The other concept that I want to blow up this morning is almost ubiquitous in the younger generation. Ubiquitous, that means everybody's doing it. But I like the word. It's the concept that a great marriage should be Instagram worthy all the time. This view believes that marriage should be a series of amazing experiences one after another, outdoing itself over and over and over. Captured, these, all of these experiences, captured by a professional photographer in perfect lighting with a spectacular background, perfectly curated and captioned that shows the world just how happy you are. Think about it. For those of you who are married, how Instagram worthy is your marriage? It's actually pretty common to let someone else's Instagram life negatively affect your real life. Why don't we go on vacations like that? Why don't we fly to Argentina for our weekly date nights? I also think that this, that this has negatively influenced the way people look for a spouse. I had this experience. I really don't Instagram that much, but when I do, it's usually when I'm in the woods, I'm a mountain bike. That's typically when I Instagram, because I'm out there, I'm like, this is awesome. I'm going to take a picture of this, right? When I'm arguing with my wife, or I'm disciplining my children, or I'm cleaning my basement, I don't have those thoughts, okay? <laughs> but so... Sometimes, like a couple, uh, last year I went down to Bentonville, Arkansas to do some mountain biking. It's home of uh, Walmart. Walmart put like $7 million in the mountain bike trails. It's a great destination for mountain biking. I went down there and there were some features that I couldn't hit. They were beautifully built, but they were just too big. They were out of my pay grade. And I, I, I just took a mental picture of them. 
And this year when I was getting a chance to meet another pastor down there and we're gonna ride some trails, I had these images come to my mind. And it was almost like, like Instagram has changed the way that I think about things. And I'm like, I'm going to hit that thing this year and I wanna take a picture of it. Like I can see my Instagram post before I'm even there. Like I'm going to do the thing and I'm going to tell others that I'm doing the thing through Instagram and I can't wait to do it. Now what's interesting, I, I feel like Instagram has had this kind of effect on society at a whole, that sometimes we do things not just to do them, but we want to do them so that we can post about them. And I think it's affected the way that we even look for a spouse. I think now, listen, younger generation, many of us, us, sorry, many of you, I used to say us, I'm 40, I'm turning 40 this year, so I gotta say you now, all right? Many of you, when you're looking for a spouse, what you're actually looking for is someone to be a prop in your curated life, in your Instagram feed. I want the person to up my Instagram game. So we look all around the world, we look on internet dating sites for the person who would look best in my Instagram feed. That we walk into a room filled with single people and immediately we look at every person in the room and we check, check them off based on how they would look in our Instagram feed. Look at that guy's jeans. No way. Look at her hair. No way. Did you see his elbows? That's disgusting. Check. Like, we just check people off the list. And then when we... Okay, there's, you know, there's a room full of, you know, 10 people. Seven of them don't meet my Instagram qualifications. There's three left. And then we take those three, right, those three who measure up physically, and then we try to see if we can make a relationship work with those three who are Instagram worthy. See, with this view, what you're actually trying to do is you're trying to turn someone that you are attracted to physically, you're trying to turn them into someone you could actually spend your life with. This is, you're pushing a car uphill here. You might make it work, but it's not likely. Now, I've already kind of given a theological response to these two Concepts of marriage in the first week. You can go back and listen to that on the podcast. Today, I want to build off of that gospel foundation and put it plain and simple. Here's what I want to build out for us today. The first view of marriage says marriage is primarily for family, structure, commitment. The second view says marriage is, is primarily about me and about making me feel good all the time and making me kind of even maybe look good. But the Bible says, God says, the purpose of, purpose of marriage isn't just family and commitment, nor is it feelings and a continuous stream of amazing Instagram experiences. One of the main purposes of marriage is friendship. That's why God gave humans the institution of marriage. Your spouse is supposed to be your best friend. Now, do you see that? Like, do they measure up Instagram worthy? Are they Instagram worthy? And then if they are, then I'm gonna see if I can make them into my best friend. 
pushing a car uphill. This is the hard way of doing things. See, in the Bible, in the very beginning, when God creates man and woman, this is, this is what God does. God looks at man. Actually, God creates everything, right? And he's in this rhythm. God's in this rhythm. Light, ooh, that's good. Trees, good, right? He's doing, he's creating everything. Animals, good. And he's going through it. Good, 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 good. And then he creates man. And he says, not good. It's the first thing that he said was not good after creating everything. And he said this, it's not good that man should be alone. Man was not made to be alone. And so what God does is God creates a help, her, a help meet for him, somebody that complements him perfectly. And he creates this woman, right? And God gives them this kind of mandate. He, he wants them to work. He wants them to subdue creation. People call it the cultural mandate. Go to work, make cool things out of all the creation that I gave you. Work wasn't cursed until after the fall of Adam, right? And so for Adam's loneliness, he gives a woman. He gives a friend, a companion. He didn't put a family in the garden. It's not family-centered. It's a husband and wife in marriage. And the more you study marriage, the more you realize that the best marriages exist between two people of the opposite sex who are best friends. That really is the secret to a great marriage. So single people, don't go out and look for someone who just turns you on physically. Don't just go looking for the best person you can get. Look for someone you love being with. Someone who is a great friend, who you find interesting and who finds you interesting. It's far more easy, here it is, to turn a deep friendship with the opposite sex into a romantic relationship than it is to go the other way around. Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived, other than Jesus, when speaking of his first love, the wife of his youth, he says this in Song of Songs 5.16. This is my beloved and this is my friend. One of the reasons Solomon encountered so much despair in his life is because he moved away from that friendship. And instead of pursuing his first wife all the days of his life and putting her first, he went chasing after other women. I think it was one of the greatest regrets of his life as we kind of hinted when we went through Ecclesiastes. So when God sees it's not good that man to be alone, his answer to that problem is a, is a friendship, is marriage. But we should, this kind of begs the question, what is friendship? Well, C.S. Lewis spent a lot of time talking about this in his book, The Four Loves. He says that friendship happens when two people find out that they are interested in the same thing or that they're both seeking the same truth or they both come to understand the same truth. He says, you know, a friendship is on its way when two people get together and they say, what? You too? I thought I was the only one, right? Think about that. What? You too? I thought I was the only one. They find that they share some, something in, in common, Right? They have common interests. This makes sense. But it's actually really profound. And I think some of this, uh, listen, you don't approach friendship face to face. 
Have you ever had somebody come up to you and said, I want to be friends with you. Let's be friends. Right? Immediately. Listen, if you do that, your mom never told you how to make friends. Okay? I apologize. Right? You can't just go, go be friends with them. Hi, I'm going to be your best friend. Immediately you're like, you're a psychopath. Let's back off. Right? Why? You don't approach friendship face to face. Friendship happens shoulder to shoulder. Friendship happens when two people are interested in something other than themselves together, right? One person says, I want to be your friend. You immediately go, I don't want to be your friend, <laughs> right? Wait, wait, wait. Oh, are you inter- are, can we be interested in something else together? That's how true friendships are made. Think about it. Um, you, both of you guys are into working out, right? You're into CrossFit, whatever, right? You're doing that thing together, you become friends. You have a common interest. You're into books. You're reading things together. You are, you become, you're becoming friends, right? You're into coffee. Like, let's sit down and get coffee together. This is about coffee. And we become friends. Friendship, here it is. Friendship is a deep oneness that develops when people are walking together, side by side, moving towards the same goal. Now, if you've ever been on a team, right? You're playing football, right? We're not getting together because we like each other. Dude, I really need a friend, right? It's not why we're together. We have a goal. We wanna win games. We wanna play the game and we wanna win and we're working towards that goal and what happens all the time is as two people are working towards the same goal, friendship happens in the midst of it, right? And military units, same way. We have a goal. Some of the deepest friendships happen when when people are working together for the same goal. We're working shoulder to shoulder, moving towards a goal. But, For the Christian, this is really significant. This is why the Bible says that Christians must only date and marry other Christians. Where he says, the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. The yoke was the way they would, the oxen would pull behind the cart and unequally yoked would be you put maybe like a really strong ox and a really weak ox and the strong ox would literally kill the weak ox. He would drag him behind, cause all kind of problems. So he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Christians only date and marry other Christians. What fellowship does light have with darkness? He goes on and on about this. Now why? For the Christian... Our, the Greek word is, is telos. Our goal, our end, our ultimate aim in life is God, right? It's heaven. It's the new creation. It's to follow Jesus. That's our goal in life. We are following Jesus on our way to future glory. Now, let's just say, for, for you know, illustration purposes, that that goal is directly north, For the person who isn't a Christian, no matter what goals they have in life, they aren't north. They're in whatever other direction you want to call it, but they're not north. So how could two people walk together and develop a deep and lifelong friendship if they're headed in opposite directions? 
If you're a single person, all right, we, we don't practice missionary dating. This person's not a believer, but I'm going to try to make them in. I mean, you can make them, you can disciple them, you can evangelize them, that's great, but don't do it through dating. I'm going to commit myself to this person and then hopefully I can get them to become a Christian. It doesn't work that way. Now, if you're married, if you're, if you're maybe you're married to an unbeliever because for whatever, whatever reason, you know, Peter, uh, we learn about this in 1 Peter, you're to pray for their conversion. Pray that God would save them. Pray that God would open up their eyes, right? Stay in the marriage, love them well, lay your life down for them, apply the principles that we're learning in this and ask God to change them, ask God to save them. <clears throat> Paul here in Ephesians begins to show us this deep friendship that's meant to develop as we're moving toward, towards the same goal. We saw our, same, our goal from um, week one. It's become like Christ. It's to reach new heavens and new glory. But here, here's what it means. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak again to, uh, I, I said it this week. This is how I said it in the first week. I said, <clears throat> marriage is about seeing your spouse's future glory and helping them get there, working for them to get there. But that's very, I know it's very out there, it's very philosophical, it's really high level. Um, and for the single people in here, how do I do that? Um, Tim Keller uses this, this example. Because most of us, it's hard, it's hard to see your spouse's future glory or the person you're dating, their future glory. And Tim Keller uses this example in his book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, if you've ever been around a mountain very long, you, you, you especially if you're out in Seattle, we, we were out, in, my wife and I were out in Seattle, we saw this. You look up at the mountain and all you see is clouds. You, you can't see the summit, you can't see the peak. But then once a day or, or a couple times a week, right, the sun comes out, burns off the clouds and boom, there you see the peak in all its glory. And you're like, oh, that is amazing. And then like 20 minutes later, it's gone. This is what it's like being in a relationship with another sinful human being. Every now and then, you see them in their glory. Oh, you see a character trait. Did you see how honest he was there? Did you see how direct they were? Do you see how kind she was? Do you see how supportive? Every once in a while, you see this picture of their future glory, who God is making them into, and you go, whoa, oh, and then whoop, clouds come back. Now listen, for the Christian, when we get a glimpse of a person's future glory, of who God is making them into, it's basically saying this. This is what it is. To, to want to marry someone, to want to be friends, spiritual friends with them all your life, we're looking at what God's doing in them and we say, I want in on this. I see what God is doing in you and it excites me, it thrills me and I wanna be a part of it. See, a Christian friend is someone who is committed to God's purposes being accomplished in your life. I, I wanna take you somewhere real quick. Let's just go to 1 John chapter three. 1 John chapter three, verses two. 
We lose track of this. We lose track of what God's doing in us, what his goal is. We got that scripture up there. Here we go. Let me read it. Beloved, that's you, the beloved. We are God's children now. Amen. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Pause. Okay? When you come to Christ, right, you believe the gospel, you are changed in the moment into a child of God. You become his children. Everyone in the world is not the children of God. Only those who put their faith in Christ, we get adopted into the family of God. But here's the reality. We come into that as little children and we are not what we will be. We kept saying this word over and over today, sanctification, sanctification. What does that mean? Well, it, be, it means that God is making us more and more like Jesus. He's making us holy. That's what sanctification is. It's a progressive work of the Spirit of God all through our life that matures us and makes us more and more like Jesus. And here John is saying, listen, you're, you've been made new, you're a believer, but what you're going to be hasn't happened yet. Keep reading. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be, look, like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Here's what's going on. When you become a Christian, you're getting in on this work of new creation, that God is restoring all things and he's restoring you. He's going to make you more and more like Jesus. Now, why is that good news? Well, one, it's good news because the only people who are fit for heaven are people like Jesus, right? God's holy, we must be holy. Now, I get it. When, as soon as I start using words like holy, people get this stodgy idea. They get this outdated idea of holiness that's boring. Holiness is our source of happiness. You'll never be fully happy until you're fully holy, right? Okay, C.S. Lewis is too good. Let me just use C.S. Lewis's example here. This is C.S. Lewis from um, Mere Christianity in the chapter called Beyond Personality. This is what he says, I when he's trying to describe what I'm trying to describe, he's going to bother, borrow a parable from George MacDonald. He says this, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in, that's salvation, God comes in to rebuild the house. He's remodeling, right? Why do we ask Christ to come in? because we realize we need remodeled, right? We got rooms that are busted and broken, sinks that don't work, right? So we say, God, come in and fix me. Come in and restore me. Come in and make me new. God comes in to rebuild that house. Look, at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. Thank you, God, for that anger problem. I needed help with that. Thank you for that work. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What are you, whoa, what are you doing there? What are you doing in my life right now? What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. 
He's throwing out a new wing here and he's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And then he comments on this call in scripture that tells us to be perfect. He says this, the command be ye perfect is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He said in the Bible that we were God's little G and he is going to make good his words if we let him for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into God or goddess, dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness the process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. Now, God is doing that in us and he's using marriage to move it along. Now, I want you to think about this, single folks. How should that change the way we look for a spouse? Well, let me use another illustration. The story goes that when uh, Michelangelo was commissioned to sculpt his now famous statue of David, probably all have seen the statue of David, beautiful. Took him two years to sculpt this thing. The story goes that when uh, he got commissioned, he, he, he won the rights to do it. A lot of other artists were, including Leonardo da Vinci, were, were consulted, but Michelangelo got it. It took him months before he even got started, it took him months because stone workers were bringing him huge pieces of marble. And he literally went through thousands of big chunks of marble. He would look at it, it's not the right one. They bring him one, here it is. It's not the right one. Now, what was he looking for? He's looking in a sense, he's looking at this big block of marble and he's trying to see David inside it, right? He's looking at this and he's like, okay, where are the fault lines of this rock, right? Where are the imperfections? What's going on in here? And he's looking at this big chunk of marble and he's trying to find the one inside it. He's trying to find David inside it. Now, here's, what I'm, here's my idea, my thought. Most people, when they're looking for a spouse, they're looking for a statue. They're looking for the finished product. They're looking for somebody who's Instagram worthy instead of looking for the marble, looking for the necessary requirements. What's deep down inside of this? What, what's, where are the fault lines, right? What's inside this person? It doesn't matter how good they look on the outside if their character is weak. Those are the fault lines that are really important. Is he a Christian? Is she a Christian? Is he honest? Does he have self-control? Are they pursuing Jesus?
Ephesians 5.27 says it like this. This is what Paul says. I'll start in 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, there's that word, make her more and more like Jesus, having, look, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be, look, holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now here's what's going on. This purpose of marriage is friendship. And the purpose of friendship, Christian friendship, is to shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. We are, I've used two illustrations, where we're, the clouds are coming from and we're looking for the peak, looking for what they could be, or we're like David and we're looking in this block of marble and we're thinking, I think the potential's there. Right? That's how Christians approach one another. And Jesus says here, this is how, or Paul says here, this is how Jesus approached us. That when he looks at us, we have sins, we have flaws, but he sees the future version of us, he sees the glorified version of us, he's going to make us holy, and he goes to work on us. See, a spiritual friendship mirrors the way Christ has loved us. It's eagerly and joyfully helping one another know, serve, love, and resemble God in deeper, deeper ways. This is a great delight for us. Now, what does it look like for two people to be married together and to be pursuing friendship like this. To be committed, not just to build a great marriage, to, to, but to follow Jesus and let him make us into his own image. Friendship requires confrontation. The illustration that Paul uses here is that Jesus cleanses us by washing us. What does that mean? That means we're dirty, we've got issues, we've got sins, but Christ cleanses us, that he sanctifies us, that he nourishes us, he cherishes us. If you know anything about, well, one thing, when my kids fall and get hurt, they want my help, but they don't want my help, right? They scrape their knee, they come to me. What do I, I know it needs cleansed. I know it needs taken care of. And what do they do? Don't touch it, right? This idea of Christ cleansing us, Christ sanctifying us, it's confrontational. It gets in our mess. It gets in our business. 
Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. G.K. Chesterton said, I think it was G.K. Chesterton off the top of my head, says that our friends stab us in the front. See, they tell us what everybody else is tell, saying behind, about us behind our back, but they can just look at us and go, you realize you do have an anger problem, right? Right? Friends stab us in the front. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Paul says, speaking the truth in love to each other, we grow up into Christ. Paul here says, Ephesians 5, we're washing our spouse. See, a spouse who only showers you with praise, never disagrees with you, and avoids all conflict at all costs, is an enabling partner, not, really, not a true friend. Many times those, the marriages that have gone cold, the reason they've gone cold is both partners have called a truce with each other's sin. I won't confront you about your thing as long as you won't confront me about my thing. Proverbs 27, 17 talks about friendship is like ironing, iron sharpening iron. See, when iron sharpens iron, there's sparks. Great marriages have a lot of sparks. It's one of the things that keeps them heated up. When Michelangelo asked, how did you make, or when they asked Michelangelo, how did you make David? You know what he said? All, all I did was chisel away everything that wasn't David. See this picture? I looked in this chunk of marble and all I did was chisel away everything that wasn't David. That's what a real friend does for you, for us. They see the real you that God is creating and they lovingly go after the rest with the chisel. That's the sparks. Hurts in the moment, but thank you for that. I needed that. True friendship requires confrontation. A friend is someone who's committed to God's, to God's purposes being accomplished in your life. It means if you love them, if you love your spouse, you will confront them. Listen, I know, it's what our, I know our culture says you, that you walk around looking for the perfect soulmate. Oh, that person doesn't exist. And if they did, they would not love you. <laughs> you're, looking for the per you're looking for a person who's following Jesus and has got the raw materials to be best friends with. That's who you're looking for. And, the re and they're going to have, you might barely see David in the, in the marble. But that's why God gave them you. And the word of God. So you can start chiseling. And after 40 years, maybe you have a face. If you're married, this doesn't get to stop. I meet with so many people who says, well, I tried that and it didn't work. 
No, no, no. You tried that and it was hard and you stopped doing it. We don't confront someone because it's guaranteed to change them in the moment. We confront because that is the loving thing to do. I love you enough to go after that thing that's messing your life up, which is, that's what sin is. If you love your spouse, confront them. Challenge their unbelief. Are they afraid of community? Don't back off and just let them isolate themselves. Lovingly confront them, encourage them. Keep making relationships and community a priority. Are they afraid to be on mission so they back off because of all their insecurities? Being a missional Christian, somebody who makes disciples who makes disciples, isn't for some select few. If you're a Christian, you're called to do it. Lovingly push your spouse. Lovingly confront them to do it. When a man and I, this has been one of the, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. This has been one of the greatest changes in our relationship. In the beginning, because I'm a bulldozer, right? I was very afraid of hurting my wife's feelings and I would back off and she would take things very personally. And so then it would create awkwardness in our marriage. And so like, I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm, we're just going to be nice. It was very nice. But when we realize that's not what God's called us, God's actually called us to sanctify each other. As we're following Jesus, we're going after each other's sin with the chisel. I remember one specific, hmm, argument? Let's just use that word. Where the sparks were flying. And it was in the realm of mission. And I confronted, and I knew it, you know, it's like, I knew this was going to be an issue, and gosh, it's my day off, and I'd rather just chill out. But my wife had this kind of, we, we call it now, like, just a comfort idol, and it, she, she, she's a great homemaker, she loves to keep the house clean, way, way clean, um, and one day she had the option, there was this neighbor lady who was out and she had this, we got in this big kind of argument about how, how, how clean does the house have to be? Because we all know there is, there is a line. Like, I don't want my wife to idolize cleaning the house and everything, you know, is, all, she, all she does is clean the house all day. But neither do I want my wife to be a hoarder, right? <laughs> so we do have a line. I don't know where it's at, but she was up here and she was just clean, 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 free, 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 you know, cleaning all, all the stuff and just going crazy about it. And... This, day, this, this neighbor comes out, and we've been praying for this neighbor, and my wife kind of steps out with me. I was in the garage working. My wife steps out to me. She sees the neighbor, and we had this big argument already before this, and she sees this neighbor, and she knows the spirit said, you know, go invest in this relationship. Go, go walk across the yard and talk to your neighbor. You're, you're called to be on mission. You're sent by God to be on mission, but she had laundry to do, and so there was this moment in her mind where it was, Laundry or mission? And laundry, there's a lot of reasons to do laundry, but there's one reason. It's, there's, the thought that you'll get the laundry done is a lie. Yeah. The laundry never stops, okay? 
But there's comfort in just like, I'll just go inside and I'll just, I'll bring order out of chaos to this one little laundry basket. And this world right now, this is the world, it's all chaotic, but I can bring order in this one area and it will be, this basket will be done. But in this moment, we had just had this argument before about laying down this idol of comfort and stepping out into mission. And she steps outside and the, the Holy Spirit just like caught her in the moment. And it was so clear to her. She was like, be on mission to somebody who needs Christ or go fold a, lo a load of clothes, right? And she stepped out, went, spent an hour and a half talking to this lady. This lady opened up and shared all these struggles, had just went through a miscarriage. The Lord used her in that moment. And it happened because we fought about it earlier that day. God used, each, used us to confront each other in our sin. Her, her idolatry of comfort in that moment. It was not comfortable. It was not fun, right? Made my day off a little stressful. But this is one of the ways. This is how God uses each other to chisel away at each other's idolatry to make us more and more into the image of Jesus. So, now I gotta say two things. <laughs> One, Proverbs says, uh, a nagging wife is worse than a constant dripping roof. I can say that because God says it. I didn't invent it. <laughs> what am I saying? Confronting your spouse is not constantly nagging, right? It's not constantly nagging. It's speaking the truth in love. And men, it is neither is it being abrasive and bulldozing over your spouse. The analogy that Paul uses here is cleansing like in the shower and you're, you're like wounded and you're hurt and you're dirty and you need cleansed and you need nourished and you need cherished. That's the three words that Paul uses. Cleanse, nourish, cherish. This is how we lovingly confront our spouse. It's a private thing. It's an intimate thing. And this is what, this is what I think is interesting. Friend, marriage happens when two people are work, working shoulder to shoulder, following Jesus together. But then we see here that as we confront one another in love, as we're working towards the same goal together, being like Christ, what happens is two people who are shoulder to shoulder begin to turn face to face. Tim Keller says that marriage is friendship spiked with romance. See, God gives Adam and Eve work to do, but he also gives them intimacy, right? Adam and Eve knew each other. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that the two come together in a sexual union and become one. Good marriages start off shoulder to shoulder, and they primarily stay shoulder to shoulder, but occasionally turn together face to face. Romance. Marriage is meant to be the most intimate relationship in our life. It's to be the closest of all connections between best friends. It's a relationship that is based on complete vulnerability. Naked. Washing. You're exposed. There's nothing hidden there's no secrets. He says there in verse 31, this, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, this is the, the shoulder to shoulder turns face to face. I talk a lot up here about saving your sexual relationships for marriage. It's not because I'm a prude. It's because sex is so sacred and so special. It's reserved. God puts a fence around it. See, two people loving Jesus, working together, going after their sin together, cleansing, washing, healing wounds, working together for new creation. Two people have become one. This work of spiritual friendship, right? This work of developing intimacy is so difficult that God says, I gotta put it in the middle and I gotta put a fence around it and here's what sex is. Sex is doing with your bodies what you've already done with the rest of your life. We are emotionally invested. We are financially invested. We are spiritually invested. We are working together for this goal and this oneness that is being developed overflows into physical oneness. Now listen, there's, there's so much danger in that. Sex outside of marriage tries to rip it out of this safe environment and just have fun with it. And you don't understand what's going on with your soul. I've heard so many people say, ow, oh, I love this person, but I, want to ruin, I don't want to ruin it by getting married. When somebody says that to you, what that person is actually saying is I'm not willing to be that vulnerable with you. I don't want to be that naked with you. I don't want to cut off all other options. I don't want to make this thing exclusive. I like you for the moment, but I want to keep my options open just in case somebody better looking comes along that will up my Instagram game, then I'm out. When a person says, I don't need to be married or I don't need a contract, I don't need a covenant, I don't need a piece of paper to love you, they're basically saying my love for you hasn't reached marriage level. Now, this is scary. Being this vulnerable, letting somebody see your wounds, letting someone in close enough that they can see your sins, letting someone in that can hurt you, this is scary. This is why you kind of, you're not meant to, you can't find this type of intimacy outside of marriage. It takes a covenant, these protective walls that you put around it to place two sinners in the midst of it. It takes that type of environment to open your soul up to another person with this type of vulnerability. When I look at this depiction here, that men, we're called to 
cleanse our wife with the word of God. We're called to nourish her. We're called to cherish her. I see these things as both incredibly tough and also incredibly tender. We have to be man enough to step into the stuff and go, babe, I'm going to say this for your good and for God's glory. We need to make church a priority. We need to make our spiritual health and our spiritual growth a priority in our marriage. How would it change your marriage if you began to understand that its purpose was a spiritual friendship on the journey to new creation? How would it change your marriage if you began to see that you were meant to help each other grow into the new person God is creating. That's why God gave, he didn't just give you your spouse to complete you. He gave you your spouse to make you more like Jesus. Now, I, I, I want to ask you this morning, if you've been married for a while, are you best friends with your spouse or are you just roommates? If you're single, are you looking for a best friend who's following Jesus and wants to be in this together and fighting sin together and following Jesus together or are you looking for someone to fill your emotional love tank Marriage is meant to be friendship spiked with romance. Now, how do we get this? Many of us, we're, maybe we're in a loveless marriage. Maybe we're in a great marriage. Maybe we're looking for a marriage. How do I get it? How do I make it happen? Well, it's simple, but it's not easy. The only way for us to be this type of friend with our spouse is if we can first see how Christ has been this type of friend for us. Very often people talk about Jesus like, like, and talk about us like, you are so special to God. He looked down and he saw the jewel among all the sands of the earth and he said, I'm swooping down and getting my jewel. They're so special. That's not you. <laughs> it's actually the exact opposite. Look, when Jesus looked down at you, he saw you, sorry to say this, he saw you at your worst. The worst moment of your life. The day you had the affair. The day you stole, whatever it was, the worst moment of your life when you were at your absolute bottom, Jesus down and he, he looks down and he sees you there, but he does not let you stay there. He says, I'm going to choose this person and love them into the future version of themselves, which is him. 
love them into future glory. I'm going to choose this broken vessel and make it into this beautiful, glorious creature that C.S. Lewis was talking about. That he loved us into holiness. All of us are going to be holy and we should be on the process of becoming holy now. If we're not, then you're not a Christian. But Christ looks at us, chooses us, and then loves us and goes to work with us. And every single day, how many times do we sin and how many times do we fall? And he keeps committed to us and he stays close to us and he reminds us of what he's done. I died for you. I filled you with my spirit. I'm at work in you right now. Be patient. Don't give up. Don't quit. I'm coming back soon. You're going to die and everything's going to be made right eventually. Future glory's coming. This is the commitment Christ has with us. This is the type of friend Christ is to us. He's a friend that sticks closer than any brother. He's a friend who's forever patient. He's a friend who never gives up on us. He's a friend who can look at us every time and see the statue that we're becoming. Jesus is that perfect friend to us. And when I realize that's the way that he's loved me, it changes my heart to love my spouse that way. Intimacy, vulnerability, it's the way Jesus loved us. Jesus never calls a truce on our sin. He loves us too much for that. That's why our, our spiritual life is so confusing. See, Lewis brilliantly described it. Christ comes in and he starts remodeling things we thought were all right. Rooms that we thought were okay. He starts, no, 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 I'm doing more in here. Why? Because he, he, he's creating us into the house that he's living in, the mansion that he's living in. Now, this type of marriage, this spiritual friendship spiked with romance, this type of marriage is only possible between two people who are overwhelmed at the gospel who know our own nakedness, know our own brokenness, know our own sinfulness, and yet welcome Christ to come heal us, to come cleanse us, to come love us. Have you invited Jesus to wash you? cleanse you, to nourish you, to cherish you. Only the person who's been washed and cleansed and cherished by Jesus can really do that for another human being. Let me pray. Jesus. Thank you for the way you cleanse us. Thank you for the way you nourish us. And thank you for the truth that you cherish us. We haven't done anything to deserve this. 
In fact, we've done everything to deserve your anger, your wrath, and your punishment. And yet you give us grace. I pray this morning that people would, all of us would turn from our own sinfulness and we turn and embrace you, our loving Savior and friend. And you would free us from the self-centeredness that keeps us from confronting our spouse, that keeps us from walking with them towards holiness. Father, that you would heal marriages that have long been dead. You would put marriages that are about to begin or have just begun on a good foundation. And Father, you would prepare single people who are looking for the spouse and you would prepare them by first and foremost making them see you, Jesus, our perfect spouse. Draw them into relationship. And Father, as we come right now as sinners to your table, would you nourish us with your word? Would you you nourish us with your body? We come to feast on your grace this morning. Feed us, we pray. Jesus, on the night that you're betrayed, you're sitting down with some of your friends, knowing that they were gonna run away from you, knowing that they were gonna fail you. And you took the bread and you said, this is my body that's broken for you. And you took the cup of wine and you said, this is my blood that's been shed for you. This is how we see friendship. This is how we learn to be good friends and learn to be a good spouse. You were broken. You, your blood was shed. You were self-sacrificial. But you do that in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.